welcome to another episode of Winston and Strawn's Benefits Blast podcast. I'm Steve Flores, and I'm delighted to be joined today by my partner, Cardell Spangler. Cardell has spent over 20 years of her career as an employment litigator and advisor. Cardell concentrates her practice on employment relations litigation and counseling matters here at Winston. During this episode, we'll be talking about some of the legislations that states have enacted uh, to combat workplace sexual harassment in light of the Me Too movement. So obviously, this has been a huge development for employers, uh, for the country as a whole. Um, so we're excited to have you uh, on the podcast to share some of the things that you're seeing. Uh, um, I guess to get us started, just thinking in the absence of federal legislation or federal action in this space, it seems like states have enacted uh, a variety of different laws uh, in order to combat workplace sexual harassment. And uh, it seems like they're, they're t- attacking it in a variety of different ways. So Cardell, I'm hoping you can share with our listeners based on what you're seeing, what some of these laws look like and how they're impacting employers. Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you're absolutely right. States have been attacking uh, what they view as um, this issue of a sexual harassment in the workplace in a variety of ways. And we've really seen it in, I would say, five different ways. One is banning or restricting mandatory arbitration agreements. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Prohibiting uh, certain non-disclosure provisions in separation or settlement agreements of sexual harassment claims. Um, Requiring or at least giving some more guidance around what policies should look like in the sexual harassment arena. Uh, Requiring certain training requirements um, of uh, employers Uh, sometimes yearly, sometimes every other year, depending on the state, um, and expanding the definition of uh, sexual harassment. Okay. All right. So that's that's a lot to unpack. So maybe let's start uh, with arbitration. So what what are you seeing in the arbitration space? Well, for many years, um, there's been a tug of war between employers and employees um, in terms of the propriety of requiring employees to sign mandatory arbitration agreements, uh, which requires them to take any claims related to their employment to an arbitrator rather than to a court um, or a judge uh, or a jury, right, to have them decide that claim. And uh, for many years, employers uh, have really enjoyed uh, the freedom to uh, require their employees to Um, uh, to sign these agreements. Recently, states have tried to take up this mantle in the absence of any uh, congressional action to try to say, listen, we don't think that this is really fair for employees. And so we're going to try to do something more here to require um, employers to, to, to let employees go to court, go to a judge, go to a jury. The Supreme Court has not been cooperative in that regard, though. The Supreme Court has, for many years, reiterated that the Federal Arbitration Act has a very strong federal policy favoring arbitration agreements, um, and that if an employer and employee choose to enter into what the Supreme Court really views as a contract like any other to um, arbitrate Uh, employment claims, then that contract should stand on equal footing to any other contract. Um, And so we've actually seen this play out because uh, a number of states, including, for example, New York, uh, New York itself passed a a law saying uh, any arbitration agreement 
that mandates arbitration of sexual harassment claims is unenforceable. That law actually got challenged, and a federal court in New York struck it down as unenforceable and said that it, uh, because that contract was actually grounded in the Federal Arbitration Act, the FAA, the FAA preempts this field. And so you cannot have a state law that uh, bans mandatory arbitration in light of the FAA and in light of Supreme Court authority. Oh, interesting. So uh, I guess one of the other areas that, that um, we've seen are um, restrictions on non-disclosure uh, agreements um, and some of the remedies associated with that. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes, happy to. Um, so it is not unusual for employers and employees to come to um, uh, an amicable resolution with respect to claims of sexual harassment, whether those claims are uh, only made to the employer without court or agency intervention, or if they are actually made with court or agency uh, intervention, right? Um, and many of those agreements um, have provisions in them that prevent um, uh, this employee from discussing or disclosing uh, anything about the agreement, the facts of the agreement, any of the underlying circumstances that gave rise to the agreement. Those are very common provisions in, um, in separation agreements and settlement agreements. And so what states have done, New York, for example, California has some limitations, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, New Jersey, a bunch of different states have started to enact legislation that says um, you can't prohibit um, an employee or in, even a former employee, if that's the situation, uh, from agreeing to a settlement that involves non-disclosure of a sexual harassment claim unless um, the claimant preference is to agree to that. And so what we're seeing is, and in fact, I'll just back up for a second, that, that piece is really important because the early drafts of some of this legislation actually had um, no exception. So in other words, it was a blanket uh, prohibition on these types of non-disclosure provisions. Okay. And what's, what's, so what's the policy consideration on the, on the carve-out? Yeah, well, so what happened was the plaintiff's bar actually pushed back on that mm. because there are um, some, uh, this typically affects women, men can be affected as well, but it is more widely an issue for women. Um, and they did not actually think that for a number of their clients that it would help them to have their agreements out there in the public sphere, that maybe this was something that they do wanna keep private. And so they, uh, so states have given employees the option. If this is what you want to do, that's okay. That's fine. But then they, they say, well, why don't you do something like the OWBPA waiver in the age discrimination context? You have to give employees 21 days to consider an agreement and seven days to revoke if they're being asked to waive an age discrimination okay. claim. So we're seeing those kinds of provisions now come in in the uh, sexual harassment context as well. And in, in the order past, to that, wouldn't, it, that was it, not there. Mm -hmm. So now in some states, you need to give an employee who's waiving such a claim 21 days to consider, seven days to revoke. Okay. Okay. So you also discussed a little bit about employers kind of going above and beyond and, and changing their internal practices um, in, in light of the Me Too movement. Um, can, can you speak a little bit about what you're seeing there, employers um, kind of running with this? Sure, yeah. What I've seen is 
really a wave of um, internal investigations uh, related to um, these types of, of claims. And, you know, and the claims are really widespread. I mean, some dating back, you know, 10 years or more, uh, some that involve, um, you know, no touching of any kind, but just behavior that made uh, employees feel uncomfortable, you know, all the way to, you know, some more serious uh, conduct. Um, and what I have seen is that um, employers have been taking these allegations very seriously. There's really no, there isn't necessarily an obligation to investigate something that happened 10 years ago right. um, that, you know, really can't be sued upon now. Um, but that's a fairly narrow way to look at this. Um, employers are really trying to look at the entire work environment and making sure that the environment itself is one that is um, conducive and safe for all employees. And so they're going back really and looking at, at these claims, investing them to the extent that they can and trying to come to conclusions and really um, um, you know, coming up with appropriate uh, uh, remedial measures to the extent that they're finding anything. So uh, we have seen a real uptick in those kinds of investigations. So it's going back to, to so, yes. prior periods. Right. So. And I would say, um, I mean, you know, the Me Too movement is almost like two years old now. And so some of that has slowed, I would say, pretty dramatically. Um, you know, a year ago, 18 months ago, there were just a rash of these kinds of investigations because I think employees were really hearing what was going on in the news and kind of saying, well, wait a minute. As I think back, maybe some things happened to me that I wasn't happy with. And maybe they were old, but I'm going to bring them forward anyway. I see. And so there was there was sort of that big movement. I'm not seeing that quite as much now, um, but I do think that there is, you know, still more of an uptick in terms of people being willing to come forward with even current allegations and saying, this is what I um, think has happened and not sure if it violates any policies, but I just to be on the safe side, I wanna report it and see what can be done. And employers are taking those very seriously. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, okay, well, I think that, that probably uh, closes us out, but thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for sharing your expertise in this area. Um, and thank you to our listeners for listening to another edition of our Benefits Blast podcast. You can subscribe to the Benefits Blast podcast via Apple, iTunes, or Google Play, or by visiting the Winston & Strong website for more insights on the latest legislative, regulatory, and practical developments concerning employee benefits and executive compensation, and in this case, labor and employment. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>